You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. All right, everybody, good to be with you again across the airwaves. And uh, I want to thank you for making it a priority to gather with one another. We're going to see in this passage just how important it is that we gather together to encourage and strengthen one another. It's lockdown number six, and uh, good news is there's only three lockdowns till Christmas, so count them down, kids. Um, I, <laughs> I don't want to, sorry, I don't want to make light of what is, for all of us actually, a very uh, anxious time. I think every single one of us is experiencing some heightened level of anxiety or depression, even despair. I was reading one research paper just this week uh, from Australian National University uh, in Canberra. They have done a study on um, anxiety and depression in the pandemic, and as you would expect, uh, all of everybody's levels of anxiety and depression are up um, compared to pre-pandemic kind of levels, and I, I can't interpret all the data. I asked a psychologist friend to interpret some of it for me, and that's the big idea is yes, all of us are experiencing a heightened level of anxiety at this time, even despair, as we think, uh, you know, if we come to terms with just how long this thing is dragging on, um, and, and how often we're kind of thrown back into lockdown. So. I uh, just want to say that is legitimate. If you're feeling that way this morning, that is legitimate. Uh, don't want to judge or belittle or be you know, blithe about this. You, uh, what you're experiencing is real. Um, and at the same time, I think, uh, at least speaking for myself, it is helpful to get some perspective um, by um, considering the suffering of other people around the world and throughout history. We're going to see that a little bit this morning with the, the sufferings of the people in, in Thessalonica and what they were going through. Uh, I was reminded of this earlier in the week. I was listening to a podcast, which I'm, I'm wont to do at any kind of given time throughout the week. But this was a, an interview with a, uh, a guy who is from, um, well, he was a member of the Hmong, um, who, who are uh, a I guess a tribe of people um, from Laos and Vietnam and I think parts of Thailand, all, all around that area, and uh, they, many of them emigrated to America because they sided with the Americans in the Vietnam War, and so many of them found refuge in America. This guy was one of those uh, people, and he'd been living in Minnesota for about half of his life, um, but he told the story of the night that he escaped from Laos. Uh, in, in the midst of a, a, a gunfight. Um, and uh, it just made me think, um, first of all, made me very grateful that I have my family and that we're together. Because his experiencing, his, what he experienced was harrowing. He told the story, and he, he, he was sort of 10, 11 years old at the time, so he was remembering back to this, being a very small boy, the night that they made a run for it to this checkpoint where they could find their way to the Americans and hopefully one day make it to America. And his family were running through the jungle in the midst of gunfire. Um, at one point he saw his brother just drop to the ground and not get up again. And anyway, the long and the short of it is he made it to America, but he hasn't seen his family since then. He doesn't know, apart from seeing his brother probably get shot, 
Uh, he doesn't know what happened to his family. And just the thought of ever having to go through something like that, of being torn apart from family in that way, or, or being the mother or father of that young boy and never again seeing someone that you have loved and nurtured and raised over 10 or 11 years. Just I cannot even begin to think about how gut-wrenching that would be, how heartbreaking that would be. And yet, you know, that's the language that Paul uses when he talks about his separation from the believers in Thessalonica. I want us to read it together. The first two verses of our reading, verse 17 to 18, he says, But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return to see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. You might have a little note in your Bible there when he says, uh, after the, the first part of the first verse, after we were forced to leave you, the note in my Bible tells me that literally what he says there is that, that we were orphaned from you. That's the way he conceives of his, his separation from the church in Thessalonica. It was an, an orphaning. It was a tearing apart of family. It was a loss of children. And so he feels so deeply this desire to be reconnected with your children. If, you, if you've ever experienced, you know, if you've lost one of your kids in the supermarket for 30 seconds, you know the immediate kind of sense of, of anxiety that you experience at being separated from a loved one, from a child. That's what Paul says he experiences as he thinks about these Thessalonians and how he was torn away from them. He says, we greatly desired and made every effort to return to see you face to face. That's what he wants more than anything else. But he says, verse 18, Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Recently, I went for a hike, and this is during my leave. I went for a hike at Long Forest, which is just down the road uh, towards Melton. And um, while I was kind of hiking that trail, if possible at all times, I like to leave the trail and make my own trail. I shouldn't have done it in, in this occasion because what, when I did that and crossed over the creek, I think it's, is it Jackson's Creek? I can't remember. Anyway, it's a little creek. It's pretty easy to cross and made it to the other side, left the trail, and then suddenly I was faced with like this impenetrable, scrubby, blackberry-filled bush with the water on one side and a cliff on the other. And I kept trying to get through to find my way to the other side, to find my way to the water where I knew I could cross again upstream. And no matter which route I took, I was stopped. Unless I wanted to get like cut to ribbons, I couldn't get through. And I eventually had to backtrack like a loser um, back to the trail where normal people walked and do, do the normal people walk. That's what Paul's experiencing right now as he tries to get back to Thessalonica. The word he uses there that he's being prevented, that, that, that Satan hindered us, it's a military term. It's what uh, retreating armies used to do when they were being pursued. They used to cut um, 
slices out of the road or put in um, barricades along the road so that the, the pursuing army couldn't get through. That's what he says Satan is doing. He's hindering us. He's blocking us. And that's why in verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, he, he prays, may God direct our way to you. Literally, he's saying, clear the path. May God just come up to all of those obstacles that Satan's been putting in place and just sweep them clear. That's his prayer. That's his deep desire to be reconnected with the children that he's been orphaned from. So Paul and Timothy and, and Silvanus, all three of them have this desperate desire to get back, but Satan keeps hindering them. We don't know what Satan's up to. We don't know how he's doing this. We've got that picture language of him putting blockades in the road or cutting slices out of it, but we don't know what that actually looks like. Paul doesn't tell us. And it, this is a habit of Paul's. He doesn't really tell us a lot of details when it comes to the work of Satan. It makes me think of the 2 Corinthians passage. Remember this time last year, we were in lockdown just like this, and we were working our way through 2 Corinthians together. And this is, uh, it makes me think about that passage that we worked through in 2 Corinthians 12. This is what Paul says. He says, um, because he was having all these extraordinary revelations and these hyper-spiritual experiences, he says, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. He says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, he would, that it would leave me. But he said to me, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. And Paul concludes, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Now there's a common kind of link in our passage here and that passage from 2 Corinthians. that They both reference Satan. Um, they, in both cases, Paul doesn't go into great detail about what Satan is up to and how he's at at large. This is a mistake some of us make when we have experiences of, of, of satanic stuff. We get really consumed by it and it becomes everything we ever talk about. Um, I've had that as my own experience, having experienced some very weird demonic stuff when I got saved. My, my testimony for the next few years was almost consumed by that experience of the demonic. Um, and it sort of overwhelmed God's ministry of grace in the midst of that or the fact that God was in charge that he was sovereign over all of it and I think that's why Paul refrains from getting too stuck into the weeds about what Satan is up to he also deprives Satan of much airtime, which I think really annoys Satan um, he kind of just belittles him by saying yeah he was up to this but it's like Jesus referring to Satan as a little bird who pecks away seed I think that annoys Satan because he's full of pride anyway um, so so yeah he doesn't get into the weeds he doesn't he doesn't talk he doesn't go over and over and into great detail about what Satan is up to uh, but he majors on the fact that God uses even satanic activity for his purposes this is like this is judo jesus if you know anything about judo i don't but i do know that it's a kind of martial art where you try and use the force and the momentum and the offense of your opponent against them so they come at you and you use the their own force to put them on the ground that's what 
God does with Satan all the time. Satan is at work, this force for evil. He can't even help himself. Even if he thinks that what, what I do here, God is going to use for his glory, he can't help himself. He has to do the most evil thing all the time, and God uses it against him for his own purposes. That was the case in the 2 Corinthians passage that we looked at there. It's the case in Thessalonica, even as Satan works against Paul's gospel ministry. I'm reading a book, or rereading a book, um, and uh, I'm going to be writing a review for it. So I'll, I'll, I'll share that with you uh, when the time's right. But you'll be hearing more from me about this. Um, uh, a, a, a pastor in uh, in up on in Queensland, um, Adam Ramsey, uh, he has written this book called Truth on Fire, and it's pretty much everything you've ever heard here at this church that we think is important has been written down for you in this book. And uh, you, can, you can pre-order it now. I'm not getting any of, any of the money from this, by the way. Just make that clear. Um, but you can pre-order it now. Uh, for its, it comes out on the 1st of September. Anyway, Truth on Fire. And I want to read you a little excerpt of this about the supremacy of God over Satan. He says, The scriptures remind us that we are not in the hands of fate, chaos, devils, demons, or even ourselves, but in the secure hands of an infinitely sovereign and infinitely good God who is powerfully at work in everything for his glory. He goes on. Sovereignty, when wed to the limitless transcendence of God, does not merely mean best. It means unbeatable. He is wonderfully unworried by any potential challenger to his crown. I love that line. Wonderfully unworried by any potential challenger to his crown, forcing even evil and suffering to bend backward on themselves and accomplish his own purposes. That's the God who we worship. That's why we stand and sing, because he is ultimate. He is transcendent. He is unbeatable. How did God use Paul being orphaned from his church for his purposes? Who knows? Who knows all of the ways? Some so this is why Paul ends up, after he's been talking about the, the supremacy of God in Romans, Paul ends up just saying, who knows the depths of God's transcendence, his inscrutable ways. No one can fathom all of the 10,000 things that God is up to in every single thing that we see and experience, even the bad stuff. We don't know all of the ways that God was using even Satan's schemes for his purposes. One thing we know is that we have this letter. If Paul, have, if Paul had not been prevented from getting back to Thessalonica, we never would have had this letter to read and be strengthened and encouraged by. 2,000 years of Christians would have missed it. If it wasn't for Satan preventing Paul and Timothy and Silvanus from getting back to the Thessalonians. 
Who knows what God is up to in all of these things? How will God use lockdown number six or seven or eight or nine? How will God use the pandemic in all of its breadth and weight? How will he use it for his glory, for his purposes, for the good of his people? Who knows? It's worth keeping an eye out, though, to see what is God up to in all of this? Now, we don't have time for this next couple of verses, but I have to read it because it just blows my mind. All right, so verse 19 to 20, he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. That's how he speaks about this church that he, he only has known for a few weeks. That's how he feels about them. They're his glory. They're his joy. They're his crown of boasting. When Jesus comes back, they will be the evidence that he has done his job well. This is something that not just every pastor like Doug or anyone in vocational ministry should be motivated by, but everyone should be motivated by. You're going to hear in a minute that you are a minister of our church and therefore you should think to yourself when Jesus comes back, the crown, the glory, the evidence that I have been at work in his kingdom for his glory are going to be the people that I've blessed. The people that I shared the gospel with, the people that I encouraged I said we didn't have time, so we've got to keep moving. So verse 1 to 5, let's read that chunk. And my, my, the title in my Bible, CSB, is Anxiety in Athens, which is appropriate. That's how Paul feels. He says, Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Paul is 500 kilometers to the south of Thessalonica, which in the first century may as well have been the other side of the planet. Right, 500 kilometers to the south in Athens, and he looks back towards Thessalonica in the north, and he's anxious He's flipping out. He's freaking out because he knows that the church there is suffering, suffering afflictions of many and varied kinds. He knows that Satan is involved in his own uh, diabolical way. And he knows that Christians who suffer can be tempted to leave the way of Jesus. Most Christians who suffer persecution, all they need do is relinquish their faith and everything will be okay. 
And so he knows that temptation is great and that the tempter is tempting them to leave the way, to leave the way of Jesus. This is his biggest fear. He knows that affliction leads to temptation, which can lead to the shipwrecking of faith, which would mean that his labor was for nothing. That church planting effort, that sharing of the gospel, that imprisonment, that beating, that being orphaned, all of it would be for nothing if these guys give up, if these guys shipwreck their faith. When I think about that prospect and the very real danger of it, I'm, I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of the soils. Remember in the parable of the soils where he explains that the seed that the sower spreads out is like the word of God that goes out and how the soil receives that, that seed is like the different kinds of people who hear the gospel. And one of them, one of those kinds of people that hears the gospel, he says, Matthew 13, verse 20, the one sown, that is the seed sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and is short-lived when distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. He looks back at Thessalonica and, and he's worried that, 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 that Thessalonica is, is paved with that kind of soil. The people received the word with joy. But is there any root there? If there isn't any root there, then persecution, distress that comes because of the word, right? We wouldn't be suffering this if we hadn't received the gospel. The outcome in that case is that people fall away and that is his greatest fear. Now, here's what I want us to notice. What is his response to that genuine fear that he's experiencing? What is his solution his solution is not to get rid of the persecution. He knows that persecution is absolutely inevitable. Right? He says that to them, that, that we were appointed for this. He writes to Timothy later on when Timothy has gone to be the pastor at Ephesus. He writes to Timothy and he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted so he knows it's inevitable he doesn't try to get rid of the affliction or the temptation rather what does he do let's read verse 2 to 3a he says we sent timothy our brother and god's co-worker in the gospel of christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. That's the solution. Strengthen and encourage. That's the solution. 
for anyone who is experiencing any level of distress, and it seems like all of us are to a certain degree at the moment, for anyone who's experiencing any level of distress, accompanying that distress almost all of the time is a temptation. A temptation to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt his trustworthiness, to doubt his sovereignty. A temptation to leave the way of Jesus and to find alternative ways of dealing with life. A temptation exists in every distressing event and the solution is that Christians would strengthen and encourage one another. That's the antidote so that no one will be shaken. That's it. I don't want us to miss this. This is vital. This is vital if the people of our family are going to persevere in faith till Jesus comes and makes all things new, if they're going to do it, and if we are each of us going to fulfill our ministry in the church, then there must be this ongoing, consistent, constant, mutual strengthening and encouragement. This is your job. This is your ministry. I know many of us are confused about what we're meant to do in church. Are we meant to be on the Bible reading roster or the welcoming roster? And, you know, that's, we can help you figure that out. You don't need to be in any doubt about whether your ministry here is to strengthen and encourage others. It is. That's your job. That's your ministry. Paul gets really explicit about this in Ephesians chapter 4 where he gives us the kind of how a church should be set up to do ministry. He says, Jesus himself gave some, only some, not all, but he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers or, or pastor teachers, but they exist to equip the saints, that is, all the Christians everywhere, without exception, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ, build up, edify, strengthen, encourage. So if we have made an error over the last 2,000 years and made the guy up the front with the microphone the minister, then we have erred greatly. He might be the pastor teacher, but everyone in the church is the minister. His job is to equip the saints, the people of the church, young and old, male and female, black and white, equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is what? To build up the body of Christ, to strengthen and encourage so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. I love it. This, this forms part of his, you know, in chapter 5 we're going to see he gets to the end of his letter and he's like the preacher who says, um, uh, and, and finally, and he's got like 45 other points to go before he finishes the sermon. That's him in chapter 5. He just chucks all of these exhortations in. And one of them, in, in, cha- in chapter 5, verse 14, he says, We exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort 
the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. That's your ministry. And you get to follow in the footsteps of a incredible servant of God named Timothy. His name means God-honoring. That's your role. So if this week it comes to your mind, I wonder how so-and-so is doing. I haven't seen them for a little while. I wonder how so-and-so is doing. I heard they're isolating for a couple of weeks. And, And it comes into your mind, should I reach out to them or not? The answer is yes. I just give you now. It's just a blanket yes. Don't wait for God to appear in the clouds and tell you yes. I'm telling you now, it's yes. That's your role. That's your ministry. What a ministry to have. To strengthen and encourage the afflicted. To strengthen and encourage the body of Christ. Last little section here in verse 6 to 10. Paul uh, tells us about the report he gets from Timothy on his return. So remember, Timothy's gone the 500K is up there. He's checked them out. He's encouraged to strengthen them. Now he's made it all the way back down, and this is what happens. Verse 6 to 10, now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news. Brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us and as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul gets good news. The church is doing well and he immediately starts writing this letter. He's particularly encouraged by the news that they are full of faith and love. Faith and love. That's what he's really jazzed about when he hears about how things are going on back there, full of faith and love. It's probably important that he doesn't include the third of his little triumvirate, right? Faith, love, and hope. We're going to see in the rest of the letter that they probably are suffering from a lack of hope, particularly when it comes to the second coming of Jesus. And that in itself is because of what he says here in that, the last verse, what is lacking in their faith. That's what he wants to get around them, to fill up what is lacking in their faith. That is what, they're, what they're, they don't yet understand. Remember, he hasn't had a lot of time with them. There's probably a lot that they don't get. And one of the things they don't get is around Jesus' second coming. So Paul's going to turn to that in the, second, uh, in the last two chapters of this book, talk about what's going to happen when Jesus returns and, and how he, he trusts that that will increase their hope um, for the second coming of Jesus. 
But as it is, he's, he's stoked to hear about their love for one another, the way that they are going out of their way to provide for one another. He's, he's encouraged by their faith that has held strong even in the midst of suffering and persecution. And he's going to get to that hope business in the rest of his letter. That's the whole reason he's writing this to them. Remember, that's the meta theme, that they would have hope in the second coming of Jesus. And then this last little section, he turns to the, the prayer that he prays for them. This is a prayer that sort of joins the two halves of this letter. And it's a prayer that we'll begin next week's sermon looking at in a little bit more depth because it introduces the themes that he's going to get to for the rest of the letter. It's very, very clever the way he's written this. Yes, this is, is, is what he's praying for them, but it also gives them a little insight into where he's going to get to in the rest of the letter because he is going to both pray here for an increase in their love for one another and he's going to address the fact that they need to keep on providing for one another. Uh, he's going to address here his desire for them to be blameless and, and to walk in holiness and he's going to get to, in the rest of the letter, the fact that they need to maintain sexual purity and not fall back into pagan ways of doing sex, which were very different from what God expects of his children. And he's going to get to the, the he's going to pray that, um, that they would be blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus, which he is going to address uh, once again when he gets to the second coming of Jesus. So, so this prayer sort of introduces the rest of the letter and we'll look at it in a little bit more detail next week. But I would like to use it uh, to pray over us now as we close the book again for this week I'm going to pray that God uh, just as he was working in the Thessalonians in their own uh, perilous situation that he would be doing the same thing for us in our situation today strengthening and encouraging us shaping us for the age which is yet to come let's pray together Father, I thank you for your word to us. I thank you that Paul was unable to get back to Thessalonica when he wanted to. I even thank you that you used Satan's diabolical schemes to give us this letter. And so once again, I ask that you would increase our trust in you in the midst of our own afflictions. That you are indeed not only interested in our welfare, but at work in the midst of every single thing that happens, at work for your glory and for our good. We trust you. I pray that you would be with us, particularly in this lockdown period. Those of us I know who are having to isolate for a couple of weeks because of the, the hot spots around Caroline Springs and elsewhere. Lord, release your church. Mobilize Red Door. Send us out to help those who are in need. Lord, to strengthen those who are wavering, to encourage those who are afflicted. Use us, I pray. 
I pray that each one of us would see ourselves as ministers in this church. And even now as we're separated from one another, I pray that our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus would direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. And may he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. Let me just encourage you as we sing praises to God, uh, encourage you also to be preparing to share with your brothers and sisters during our sharing time. This is your first opportunity after hearing this sermon and call to encourage one another, your first opportunity to do it. So I pray that you would take and encourage you to take that opportunity.